0: All right, you may be seated and children up to the age of three can go to the back. And for us, we're going to open our Bibles to John, the Gospel of John chapter 18 this morning. John chapter 18 and our passage today is uh, John 18 verse, verses 1 through 11 go ahead and read that. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who, was betray- who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests, and pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons then jesus knowing all that uh, that would happen to him came forward and said to them who do you seek or whom do you seek they answered him jesus of nazareth jesus said to them i am he judas who betrayed him was standing with them when jesus said to them i am he they drew back and fell to the ground so he asked them again whom do you seek Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? That is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So uh, we are in John 18 now. Uh, John 17 was a true blessing for us. We got to see the the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And in John 17, we saw him pray uh, for himself, he prayed for his disciples, and then he prayed specifically uh, for all believers. And when we look at that, chapter, we must, uh, include ourselves in that, that we were on, we were on the mind of the, of our savior as he, uh, as he went to the cross for us. And, uh, the prayers that he prayed were I hope encouraging to you and, and, and helpful to you as you continue to live out your life. But now here in John chapter 18, there is a transition, so to speak. Uh, Jesus goes from his prayer to now, uh, things are set in motion for him to be arrested. Um, tried, and then eventually crucified. So that's, where, that's kind of where we're at here in John chapter 18. Now, when we talk about Jesus' arrest, we see the uh, cup, so to speak, that the Father has put in place for the Son, or rather has prepared uh, for the Son. And what I mean by cup is I mean the cup of God's wrath that has been prepared for uh, the Son to drink makes me think back of, you ever heard the term cupbearer? Well, back in the day, when when kings were around, they used to have a cupbearer. We we read about them in the Old Testament. Um, there were some famous stories concerning uh, cupbearers, but the, the job of a cupbearer was to taste uh, the king's wine and uh, to keep him from being poisoned. And here uh, we see that Jesus, being the king of all kings, did not have a mediator he did not have a cup bearer but rather uh, Jesus drank his own cup he drank the cup that that the father had prepared for him and as I said before the cup that I'm speaking about is a cup of God's wrath uh, but specifically for the sins of his people that's the cup that I speak about to you it was appointed that Jesus would drink this cup and thank God that he did and that's the reason why we can celebrate today and have assurance of our salvation today, because Jesus drank uh, the cup of wrath uh, from the Father. So today, what I want us to do in our passage, I want us to see the sovereignty of God in bringing about His redemptive plan for His people uh, through through the 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 persecution, through the arrest, through the uh, suffering uh, that Christ uh, experienced. I want us to see that his sovereignty, bringing about that redemptive plan for his people and and specifically to see how and why he did that. He did that for his glory. There was no other reason but for his glory. The byproduct of of, of, of him getting the glory is that we were saved out of that. But we need to understand that he did it for his glory. And uh, in, in in the process of that, you and I, we were saved from our sins. Or Rather, I think it's better stated that we were saved from the wrath of God. All right, so let's uh, look at this story here, and I want to look at the three different groups of people who were involved in this story to see how uh, God's sovereignty was on display in bringing about this redemptive plan. The very first group of people I want to take a look at is, uh, well, he's not a group of person, this is one person actually, but the betrayer. I want to look at Judas. I want to look at Judas, and then we're going to look at the band of soldiers, and then we're going to look at the disciples. So beginning with Judas in verses uh, one through three, uh, we see here that Jesus' appointment with the cross was set into motion right before the Lord's Supper. And we we know the, the famous story, and I'll go back and read it for you. If you turn your Bibles a few pages back to John chapter 13, we'll see there that Judas was I guess the best way to put it is released by Christ uh, to go and do what he had already planned to do. So John chapter 13, uh, let me read verses 26 through 30 for you this morning. It says, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought, that because, some thought that it was because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So that's the, uh, you can turn back to John 18 now, but that's the passage where we see that, Uh, it was set into motion that Jesus uh, would be going to the cross. That was like the pivotal point. That was uh, the moment of truth right there. And Judas excuses himself, and he goes to uh, basically carry out his plan to betray betray Christ. Now we come all the way. So he disappears. They have the Lord's Supper. And then we have the the high priestly prayer in uh, John chapter uh, 17. Also, Jesus shares some intimate words with the, the disciples who are left behind in John chapter 14, and so all this goes on. Now we jump to John chapter 18, and Judas comes back into the picture, and he's coming back into the picture to fulfill his plan. Uh, he had planned to betray Christ, and now we see it being fulfilled. Uh, scripture says in verse 2 of John chapter 18 that uh, Judas knew where Jesus would be, uh, because uh, chapter 2, tells, or excuse me, verse 2 tells us that Jesus often met there with his disciples. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Judas knew that's where, people, that's where Jesus would be, and that's where he led uh, the band of soldiers with him. Scripture also says that Judas was able to capture Jesus there uh, with a large amount of soldiers that he brought with him, and we see that in verse 3. Now when we're looking at this story, it might seem as if uh, Jesus was caught by surprise. You know, because basically Jesus, he prays his high priestly prayer. Then uh, he, he gathers the disciples together. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is praying there. And that's the moment where he's praying and he's sweating. He's, he sweats out blood. And he tells his disciples to, to be watchful, to be mindful that the enemy is is, is, is near, the enemy's at work. And so as Jesus is praying, uh, we have this scene of Judas and, and the band of soldiers that, that are with him. And, and it seems like they captured Jesus, and it seems like Jesus was not expecting what was about uh, to happen. But we know that that is not correct. We know that God is sovereign in all things. And just as uh, Judas, or excuse me, just as God used Pharaoh in the Old Testament to bring about his redemptive plan for the nation of Israel, uh, we see here God using Judas to do the same thing uh, for his church. When we look at Pharaoh, Pharaoh was an instrument of wrath, so to speak, because he, he brought wrath upon his people, and, 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 and God's people were able to leave Egypt They were able to leave Egypt and they were blessed by God. But Pharaoh and his people, they they suffered wrath. And here, and and we see that God was in control of that situation and he led that situation by his sovereignty. Here we see Judas as an instrument of God uh, that is being used to bring about God's redemptive plan for his people. So Judas is actually being used uh, for the forgiveness of God's church. He is used as an instrument of that. Now, the thing about Judas, though, is that despite his best efforts to betray Christ, and, and he did a great job. I mean, he went through with it, and I'm not saying it wasn't him at all. It was all him. He was the one who had betrayed Christ, and he was destined to do that. But despite his best efforts to betray Christ, it really wasn't, uh, it really wasn't Christ being overcome by Judas or being outsmarted by Judas. It wasn't like Christ wasn't expecting it all to happen because verse 4 of chapter 18 tells us that Jesus already knew what was going to happen. We see that in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? So it wasn't as if he was outsmarted and he was cornered and couldn't do anything but rather when we look at this story and we see Judas and the part that he played in all of this we must understand that it wasn't Christ it wasn't God who had been outsmarted but rather it was it was God the Father giving his son over for us as a part of his redemptive plan to save us Christ wasn't captured so to speak Rather, he was gift wrapped and given to us because that was the way we were going to be forgiven. And as I said before, Judas didn't outsmart Christ, but instead. The actions of Judas were used for the glory of God. Very humbling to see that. It's very amazing to see that, but he's not the only character we also have the band of soldiers. And we see the band of soldiers in verses 3 through 6. Now the Bible calls, uses uh, if you have the ESV version, it uses that term specifically, the band of soldiers. And it also says that there were officers of the chief priests who had followed Judas with uh, lanterns and weapons, and they were ready to overtake Jesus. Now, this band of soldiers would have been a detachment of Roman soldiers. Now Roman soldiers weren't usually in the area like that, but since the Passover was there and, and, and they were used as crowd control there were there were plenty of Roman soldiers in the area. And then also when you talk about a band of soldiers that usually numbers somewhere between 600 to 900 soldiers. That's the really neat thing about this that there were 600 approximately 600 Roman soldiers, And they were joined by the officers of the chief priests and historians and theologians believe that there were about 300 of them. So there were approximately about 900 men who were dispatched to arrest one man and 11 of his disciples. When we think about that scene in the garden I know I don't I don't picture that many men there confronting Christ. I think at the best, maybe, you know, in my mind, maybe 30 to 50, but there were hundreds of men armed to take Christ. See, the thing, though, is that it doesn't seem fair. 900 versus 12. Seemed like it was... uh, Uh, definitely the numbers favored the, uh, the soldiers and not Christ and his disciples. But when we continue to read scripture, it doesn't seem fair, not for Christ and his disciples, but rather it doesn't seem fair for the soldiers. And that's the amazing thing behind it. When they went to the area and they asked for Jesus, we are told that Jesus said, I am he. And at the pronouncement of his name, Something extraordinary happened. Look at verses 4 through 6. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, the language there when he says, I am he, that is the same as God speaking to Moses in the Old Testament when he tells Moses, I am. I am who I am. Now this is another pronouncement of Jesus. uh, I am pronouncement of Jesus and there are plenty of them here in the Gospel of John. But he says, I am he. Then it goes on and says, Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. Makes it very clear where Judas was. He was not on the side of Christ. He was against him. So Judas and all the soldiers were, who were against Christ, they were standing there together. And it seems like it would be an impossible thing for Christ to even overtake them. But look at what verse 6 says. When Jesus said to them, I am he, it says that they drew back and they fell to the ground. I've always loved that passage because that passage itself lets us know that Jesus was always in control. It, it's amazing. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing display of God's power. It reminds me of a foolish time in my life when um, I was in high school, and I remember we were playing against a rival team, a basketball team in high school. And I was uh, waiting outside. Alicia and I were dating at the time, and we were waiting outside. I was waiting with her so that uh, her, brother, her brother could come and pick her up. It after right after our basketball game. And so a couple of their uh, great players, star players, passed by and they said something uh, that I, I particularly did not like. And as they were walking by, I in turn said something to them. And I'm talking about two, two players at the moment, right? So I said something to them, they kept on walking, they were walking to their bus. And uh, me being foolish and, and, and an, angry, an angry young man who had something to prove, uh, walked after them, continuing to talk to them. And as they got on the bus, I continued to egg it on and continue to uh, say something to them. I wanted a reaction out of them. I felt pretty bold. I, there was two of them, and I was thought, you know, me against two? I think I can do it. But what I failed to see was that there were three buses there. So as they went into the bus... I don't know, in a matter of 10, maybe five, five minutes probably, uh, the freshman team, the JV team, and all the varsity team had to come out the bus. And it was me standing there with, against probably about 40 40, uh, uh, other young men who were just as capable as I was. In that moment, it's kind of humbling if you look back at it afterward and say, wow, that was really outmatched. Something could have really happened to me. That's one of those moments where you turn around and look and you're asking for somebody to hold you back, right? Cuz you don't you really don't want to charge that crowd. But I sit here and I think how humbling that is. Christ is standing there. There are 900 soldiers there. And I remember how I felt at that moment. I was a little nervous. I was nervous. Didn't know what was going to happen felt pretty real for me I knew I was in great danger but Christ is standing there he laughs at it it's no challenge to his power doesn't compare to his glory and what's awesome about it is that Christ didn't even have to put his hands on anybody he just proclaimed his name reminds me that one day, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. If you believe in him or not, it's going to happen one day. When I think about that passage and I think about this passage, it's easy to see how that could happen. One day every knee will bow. And here in our story, they didn't bow, they fell to the ground just at the pronouncement of his name. And it's so funny because you see that happen. Jesus allows him to get back up and he says, well, who is it that you were asking for again? See, not only did Jesus know what was going to happen, but here in our story, we see that he was in complete control of what was happening. We know that Jesus didn't give up because he was overwhelmed by the forces against him. Again, we are forced to see that God in his sovereignty, he surrendered as a sacrifice for the sake of the elect. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The soldiers had no power over Christ other than the power he had granted granted to them to bring about God's sovereign plan. His sovereign, redemptive plan for his people. So we know that the soldiers didn't overpower Jesus, but rather they too were used for his glory. Then we come to the disciples, verses 7 through 11. Now, they're kind of grouped together here, but Peter seems, as always, Peter is the one who uh, initiates uh, this interaction with the uh, other soldiers. But Peter was the first here to burst into action. The Bible says in verse 10 that he drew his sword which probably was more like a dagger, and uh, he cut off the ear of Malchus, and Malchus was a high priest's servant. So there Jesus stopped Peter, and he said this to him in verse 11, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now I find that passage very interesting because one of my favorite books of the Bible is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. I, I I just I love the the realness of that book, and it's it just always has touched me in reading it. Uh, but I like how Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a time for everything, and in Ecclesiastes it even tells us that there's a time to fight. There is there's a time to fight. There's a time to run too, but there's also a time to fight. But it's very interesting here. It would seem like this would be the occasion to fight. Jesus is being captured, arrested. The disciples, they want to protect their teacher, their rabbi, their savior. So I don't really blame Peter here for pulling out that dagger and going at it. I even think he showed tremendous courage to do that with around 900 men in front of him. But the thing though is is that Jesus did not see this as a time for fighting. Jesus basically tells Peter now is not the time. Now is not the time. See, this is the same Jesus that overturned tables and whipped people uh, who had desecrated the temple. So we can't say that Jesus, well, he just was completely against fighting at all. Can't say that at all. But it's, the thing, though, is that it's not the time to fight because what was happening was God's redemptive plan was coming into Action. It was being established, and now the wheels were turning, and Christ would soon be given over, given up over for our sins. And the reason for that is so that He could save His people. See, Jesus wasn't engaging in in warfare at this time. The Bible says. That he came as a lamb, right? But he left as a lion and he'll come back as a lion. And when judgment happens, then it will be a time for warfare. But here, Jesus was on a rescue mission, so to speak. So this was not a time for fighting. This was not a time for war. Rather, this was a rescue mission of Jesus. And all things happened according to God's will. So even if the disciples would have done more, they could have done more. As I said to you, I think I said last week or the week before that, that all the disciples ended up being deserters. They ended up leaving Jesus. But even if they would have done more. It wouldn't have stopped. What was about to happen. God's redemptive plan to save his people would still have been accomplished. So as we look at those three uh, characters, if you will, or groups of people, if you will, um, involved in that passage, we see God's sovereign plan, his sovereignty, his his providence, his governing over his creation. We we, We see how God was in control the whole time. Now, I think that's important for us to see that and then to look at our own lives as we look at the conclusion of of this passage. If God was in charge in that moment in time, and he has always been in charge of every moment beforehand and every moment after, I want to tell you this morning, God rules over each moment of your life as well. What has happened to you, what is happening to you, or what will happen to you, it does not escape the sovereignty of God. If it's an illness. If it's a circumstance. If it's heartache. If it's depression. If it's brokenness. Whatever it is, it has not escaped the sovereignty of God. And God is using that thing in which you are struggling with to bring you closer to Him. If you are His, He has growing you through that. You're being sharpened. You're being purified through fire. And if we know that, then we can trust God in all things. And we can trust him through any turmoil that we go through. Even 2020. We can trust him in all things. See, the truth is is that nothing was going to stop Jesus' divine appointment to die for the sins of his people. Jesus didn't die because he was outsmarted and betrayed by Judas. Because again, the Bible tells us Jesus knew all that would happen to him. Jesus didn't die because he couldn't overpower the guards. Because at the pronouncement of his name, they drew back and they fell. Jesus didn't die because no one tried to protect him. We know that Peter drew his sword and tried to defend him. But Jesus says, no, now is not the time. When we look at this story, we must understand that Jesus died in order to drink the cup of God's wrath for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9.22 says. You know, as I told you last week that you were on the mind of Jesus whenever he prayed for you in, in John chapter 17. In John chapter 18, you were on the mind of Jesus as well. Because you're the reason why he went to the cross. I say you, but I I can include myself in there. I need to. We're the reasons why. I'm just trying to make it personal for you. He went to the cross to die so that the wrath of God would not be on you. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. Listen, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, our sins are forgiven because of what Christ did. And sometimes we look at this whole story, uh, we look at the the passion of Christ, and we see this passage here in John 18, verses 1 through 11, and we we think about how things just happened to Christ. And any one thing could have changed that. The fact is, no one could have changed that. No he died with a purpose. and That purpose was to save us from our sins. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that we need to live with a purpose. And our purpose needs to be to serve him. Just as he died for us, we must live for him. It's, it's extremely important that we realize that And we realize that he was on a on a rescue mission and he fulfilled it. He completed it. He completed it flawlessly. And praise be to God that he did. Because if he hadn't, you and I would not be forgiven. Now, as we think about this story and all the details that I've shared with you, I want you to think about your own life. And I want you to think about the insecurities that you have in your own life. And I want you to realize that you serve a mighty God. Again, he is in control of all things. And he is working all things for his good. And he is working all things for his glory. Let us trust in him as we live our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time today. And I just pray for everyone here. I pray that the word was touching to them and that it helped them in their situation pray that you continue to remind us to trust in you and that you can be that you are trustworthy for there is no one like you no one in heaven no one in earth you are beyond all things and our lives rest in your hands for there is no better place for us to be we thank you that we can enjoy this comfort that we have, this security that we have in you. We pray that you help us to remember that every single day of our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and give thanks. Amen.